What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Arnie's. We are two guys who are friends, brothers, cousins, lovers, and I guess every other related thing possible with nothing better to do. I'm Matt Johnson, and I'd be dragonless for sure. And I'm Austin Terry, and King's Landing just seems like the worst place to live in Westeros. Without question. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. If you're not in any power, um, you can't live here. Go anywhere else. Just have spoiled man children running through the streets and cutting your genitals off. I don't know if we're going to get to that later when it comes to the gore of this show, but basically all of it was either let's show a penis getting cut off or let's show a pregnancy literally as the baby is coming out. <laughs> I, yeah, I think maybe they could have cut back on a little bit of that. Oh, <laughs> golly. But I mean, if you're talking about full frontal nudity, obviously, baby, we're back in Westeros on today's show. <laughs> we are finally talking about the first in a seemingly long line of Game of Thrones spinoff projects with the first season of House of the Dragon. But first, since we've never actually talked about the world of ice and fire on our podcast, Austin, what do you think your role would be in this world? Obviously, it could be like in the timeline of Game of Thrones. If you want to be further down the line, maybe it could be more in the past, like House of the Dragon. I mean, where do you think you would be in society here? Yeah, I'll give you two options, um, and I'll give you one in each timeline. I think in the past in House of the Dragon, uh, I think I would try to be a dragon keeper. Seems like a pretty peaceful role. Mm. Uh, you're pretty valued in the houses there. Seems like you might be a little safe. And then in the future, in uh, Game of Thrones, I think I'll try to be the direwolf keeper. Get to pet some puppies. Once again, pretty valued to the house and uh, kind of out of the way a little bit. I just try to stay out of the way as much as I can. I appreciate that. I think that based on your personality, I could totally see that happening and going without a hitch. Knowing myself, I'm curious if you'll agree, I would earnestly try and do that as well, but I would somehow find my way into trouble. I think I would be more suited to be the cupbearer, as we keep hearing about in the House of the Dragon show. I would just be the person going around, filling all the people in power's cups, which means technically, I guess if I'm the cupbearer, I have ties to some of these people, but eventually I'm going to see like a, like a great little inn, if you will, to like somebody, there's going to be like a weird silence during the meeting and I'm going to throw in like a classic joke or something. And it's going to upset the wrong person and they're either going to kill me or more likely exile me to the wall, which ties into what you said, Austin, which mean cut forward to Game of Thrones. I'm now at the wall. I've been exiled. I journeyed beyond the wall, was killed by a White Walker. And now in the time of Game of Thrones, I am a White Walker going to kill um, Daenerys Targaryen. So it, it all comes together, truly. Yeah, I think actually knowing your personality, you might be in more danger as the cupbearer because I could see you getting into the wine a little bit and then showing up a little drunk to work. Yeah, I could show up drunk one day and then uh, make that joke that I just mentioned and get exiled. I guess what I'm saying is either way, I'm going to be the cup bearer and I'm going to be exiled to the wall. <laughs> but I actually think I actually think in this universe, exiled to the wall is like the best case scenario. Yeah, it sounds really bad, but as we've seen, could be worse. I mean, the wall, you're going to be cold for sure, but those coats seem you pretty You got some furry. bros around you. You play yeah. cards every night. Got some good friends. Nobody's cutting off your genitals. Well, unless you're Jon Snow and, you know, you're perceived to be a traitor and then like five of your friends do stab you to death and you have to be resurrected. So eh, I guess there's pros and cons to be sure. But he is alive. So that's the key in Westeros. Wow, so right. Find a way to stay alive. That's right. And then he hung all five of his perpetrators. <laughs> so I guess our point is in the world of Game of Thrones, I don't know if there is a good outcome except for Austin, who is just being a dragon keeper and a direwolf keeper. So more power to him. Let's hope that works out. All right. Let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. House of the Dragon is set 172 years before the birth of Daenerys Targaryen, the mother of dragons. It follows an ensemble cast and portrays the beginning of the end of House of Targaryen, as well as the events leading up to and covering the Targaryen civil war of succession known as the Dance of the Dragons. So I don't know about you, Austin. Maybe we'll get into a little bit here before we get into spoilers for House of the Dragon specifically. But, you know, Game of Thrones was kind of the it show for a long time. Uh, I think starting in 2010 or 2011, if I remember correctly, and running through 2019, which feels like ages ago that we were last talking about Game of Thrones. But in reality, you know, only a few years. And certainly I can't remember where you were at, but man, that last season in particular was, oh man, I just did not like where most of our characters ended up. I did not like 
how quickly paced a lot of that conflict was and especially the resolution. So uh, at least for me, it was certainly that show is one of the all time greats, in my opinion, but it left a terrible taste in my mouth. So when they announced all these spinoff projects, I was, you know, a little bit. It's not that I wasn't excited about the idea of them, but I just wasn't super like anticipating new Game of Thrones content, especially like I said, it's only been a few years. And I kept hearing about it because once it premiered, I was like, I stuck to my guns. I was like, I'm, I just don't feel like watching this. I'm not <laughs> I'm not in the mood to get back into that world, even though I love Game of Thrones uh, for the most part. I think you heard about it from me because every Monday I was like, hey, Matt, did you watch uh, House of the Dragon yet? <laughs> and I was like, no, I haven't yet. <laughs> yeah, I just there, I don't know what it was. There was just something that kept me away. I just wasn't ready to dive back into that world. Um, but then after a few weeks, I finally did. And yeah, I'm excited that I watched it. I'm glad that I was able to binge most of it. And I'm excited to get your thoughts because let's just get into it, Austin. I mean, what were your thoughts, I guess, on the ending of Game of Thrones? And what were your expectations going to House of the Dragon just a few years later? Were you ready to dive back into this world? And after you kind of go into that whole rigmarole, let me know just your kind of general non-spoiler thoughts on House of the Dragon now that season one is done and we know there is more on the way. Yeah, I'll pretty much echo your sentiments on Game of Thrones. Um, You know, at its peak, it was one of my all-time favorite shows. That last season, just like you, and I think I have never seen a show like so unanimously where everyone is like, yeah, that last season's terrible. I do think the last half of that season is, is really where the downfall is. I think people tend to forget that the first half of that season was pretty solid, and then it just took a dive bomb. But it, it did definitely end leaving a bad taste in my mouth. And I've always felt like that story was done. And then when they announced all these spinoff projects and prequels and stuff, I kind of like you, I was like, this just feels like HBO, they miss the streaming numbers from Game of Thrones. They're trying to double dip. They're trying to get back into the universe. And so I also thought at the time, I'm probably not going to watch House of the Dragon. Um, And then the marketing picks up and then you get to premiere night and I do not have the same willpower that you do because the second premiere night for House of the Dragon got here, I was like, all right, baby, back into Game of Thrones. Let's do it. So (laughs) I was excited like when the show actually started. I was always worried that this show was going to feel like, what's the point? And I think that's the highest praise I can give the show is it does feel like it has its own place in the streaming um, hierarchies. It does feel like it earned its story. And just going into my non-spoiler thoughts on the show, definitely slower than where Game of Thrones got in the second half of its runtime. But I do think it does kind of keep that slow burn that Game of Thrones used to have in the beginning. So if you're into the politics, if you're into the, the human stories of Game of Thrones, I think you'll really like House of the Dragon. If you're somebody that really liked the action and the combat in Game of Thrones, um, at least in this first season, that's not really in House of the Dragon. So you might be disappointed there. I always found the politics in Game of Thrones more interesting than the actual action stuff. So I was really happy they kind of returned to their roots in a way. Um, I think all the performances are great. I think where it ends, it, it definitely does set up for more seasons. And I am very excited about the future. The first half is a bit of a slow burn. But as we get into that second half, um, I came away really high on this first season of House of the Dragon. Yeah, I'm pretty much right there with you. It's interesting. Maybe I don't know about you because I know (laughs) you and I have talked about Breaking Bad and uh, Keith and I are huge Better Call Saul fans. And you've talked about before, kind of in contrast to Game of Thrones, that you never wanted to watch Better Call Saul or kind of anything outside of Breaking Bad because that show ended so perfectly for you. So maybe in a weird way, the fact that Game of Thrones had such a fucking dud of an ending, we were like, all right, yeah, I guess I'm ready for more. <laughs> I'll, I'll check it out. Can't be worse than that, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe it worked out because I'll tell you what, once I think by the time I started watching House of the Dragon maybe like six or seven episodes were out already. And that was a really good binge. I'll tell you what, I, ha- I had a great time going through that, just kind of plowing through it. And I, I I think I completely agree with you. It's really, it is pretty reminiscent of the first season of Game of Thrones. Like all the characters for the most part are together. I imagine as the show goes on, we're going to get more split stories like we kind of got used to in future Game of Thrones seasons. But I'm definitely down with that. And the politics of this show are incredibly interesting which I think the same could be said about Game of Thrones. But as Game of Thrones went on, it's almost like each character's story felt like a different genre in some ways. Jon Snow, a lot of the time, felt more action-based. I think a lot of Sansa's stories was more about revenge. Arya, at very weird times, it was almost like weird sci-fi. She's going through like the house of the, like the, of like the many-faced men or whatever. And like it's like a thriller at times. It was like, okay, so each character kind of gives you a different flavor, which was always cool. But so far with this, it's, it's very political focus and kind of uh, just that 
ramp up to what is clearly going to be an explosion where all these characters are going to fracture. And in that sense, the tension built very well in a way that I was very impressed by. There's a sense of foreboding in this show that's yeah. just done so well. Yeah, and I, that's a great time to bring it up. I think, without spoiling anything, I think at this point, people have either watched the show or at least know that in contrast to something like Game of Thrones, there are a lot of time jumps throughout this 10-episode first season. And I think that foreboding nature builds so well because of the time jumps. So that's one of the positives. But for me, where the negatives of the show come in um, are... Also, the time jumps. I think those time jumps work in a lot of ways, but they also kind of fail uh, the character development in a lot of ways. Like whenever we would like skip several years and we would return and I would watch a full episode. And once the credits started rolling, I was like, OK, I went with an open mind. But man, it really feels like they skipped over some very important character moments. Like they mentioned some things that happened. But I think we really needed to see some of those things because I'm not very adhered to some of these characters. And like. I'll try not to bring up Game of Thrones too many times when we get to like the spoiler section, but in that show, because we spent so much time with a huge ensemble cast of characters with like over like a short period of time, I got to know them pretty well pretty quickly. And even when I didn't like them, I was still interested in their stories. Whereas here, we skipped so much time. A lot of these important side characters, I felt like I didn't know at all or just didn't really care about. Um, so I was still interested in the story, like you said, but I think that's probably my main negative is just that there's a lot of little story bits and pieces here and there and a lot of the character development that didn't work because they were skipping so much time so quickly. Um, that being said, I am excited for the future and, you know, what they keep doing is I still thought the writing was strong enough overall. Yeah, I totally see your point on the time jumps. And I'll also call out there, too, that because of the time jumps, uh, at some points they do have to change actors and actresses. And that can be a little jarring, too, in the story because you, you make it attached to one actress's style and then there's a new actress coming in. Um, so I totally get why that was jarring. What I really tried to do while watching this show um, is compare this first season of House of the Dragon to the first season of Game of Thrones. Um, and for me, I actually think I would say House of the Dragon had a better first season than Game of Thrones did. It could be getting a lot of credit there because I'm already into the Game of Thrones world and kind of understand how things work. And so it didn't really have to do that heavy lifting that Game of Thrones had to do. But there was always some jarring stuff too with Game of Thrones. Like I, I think people forget that in the first season, they didn't have the budget for like big battles or anything. So there would always be these weird cuts where like a huge event would happen and then you would have some guy going like, oh, crazy battle back there. And we never got to see it. So I think Game of Thrones had those same issues that House of the Dragon does with their time jumps. And I actually thought House of the Dragon made it flow a little bit more smoothly without having to like it, it did address things that we didn't see on screen, but it didn't feel as jarring because it wasn't like characters walking away from a battle that I didn't see. Yeah, that's definitely fair. I, I have not seen the first season of Game of Thrones in several years, so... Uh, I can't speak to that, but as you talk about it, that certainly does ring some bells. So not perfect for sure. Um, and uh, even though I had a lot of problems with this season, I don't know. There's still something about it, like the way it kind of all came together by the end. I still felt satisfied. So it's it just one of those things where I was like, OK, there were some holes here and there, but I still certainly enjoyed my time watching this. And it was a very solid first season. And I think if you're someone that has never seen um, Game of Thrones at all. I would actually recommend watch this first season of House of the Dragon. And if you like it, then go watch Game of Thrones, because if you'll know by the end of House of the Dragon if Game of Thrones is going to be for you. Yeah, that might be fair. All right. Well, I don't know if there's much more we can talk about here without spoiling it. And I'm sure most people listening out there, you've either, you know, you don't care or you've probably seen the show because I think House of the Dragon, like Game of Thrones, is one of the most watched shows. So let's just go ahead and get into spoilers. Uh, Austin and I clearly both recommend this show. So without further ado... Let's get into it, because I think we're both going to have a lot to say here. I'm excited. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> wow, beautiful. All right, everybody. Well, with that, I'm sure you heard before our transition, Austin's beautiful, beautiful rendition of the Game of Thrones theme. So that's probably the perfect transition into our cast and crew talk. So, Austin, please, what do you got? All right. So House of the Dragon is created by Ryan Condal and, of course, George R.R. R. Martin. In addition to creating the show, Condal serves as a showrunner on season one with Game of Thrones veteran Miguel Sapotnik. Also interesting to note, Sapotnik left the show after season one, so Kondo will showrun the future of House of the Dragon going forward. This season had episodes directed by Sapotnik, Greg Gataines, Claire Kilner, and Gita Fassant Patel. These episodes were also written by Kondal, Gabe Frasenka, Ira Parker, Charmaine DeGreat, Sarah Hess, Kevin Lau, and Eileen Shim. 
and our score is composed by Raman Jawadi, who is returning from Game of Thrones, and of course, based on Fire and Blood by George R.R. R. Martin. It only makes sense with uh, you know, a Game of Thrones spinoff that the crew part is just as long as the cast I'm about to read. So of course, uh, here we go. Let's get into it. We have Patty Considine as Viserys Targaryen, Matt Smith as Daemon Targaryen, Emma D'Arcy as Rhaenyra Targaryen, Millie Alcock as the young Rhaenyra, Olivia Cook as Alicent Hightower, Emily Carey as young Alicent, Steve Toussaint as Lord Corliss Valerian, Eve Best as Rhaenys Targaryen, Fabian Frankel as Kristen Cole, Matthew Needham as Lara Strong, Harry Collette as Deceris Valerian, Tom Glenn Carney as Aegon Targaryen, the second of his name, Ewan Mitchell as Aemon Targaryen, Fia Sabin as Helena Targaryen, and of course we have Reese Ifans as Otto Hightower. Ooh, so a lot of people there, Austin, between the cast and crew. Is there anybody specifically that you feel like we should call out for either a positive or negative reason? Yeah, I have two major standouts for me. Uh, the first one is Millie Alcock as young Rhaenyra. Um, I thought this actress was fantastic and really had that like childlike wonder about her as Rhaenyra. And then as she kind of aged into her role and um, became a lot more serious and you really understood like her struggle with what she's battling as a kid born into this crown and this crazy like dynasty. And then my other standout is Matt Smith as Damian Targaryen. Uh, I thought this guy killed it in this show, especially coming off of Morbius. I'm happy he was, uh, I'm happy I got to spend a lot more time with him in this show. Um, thought he was incredible. This guy has like the best, like knowing glare about him when he can just totally tell when people are lying or like, he's really good at, um, sussing out bullshit. He's also a character that like, he does all these despicable things on screen, but largely because of Matt Smith's performance, I still found myself rooting for this guy at the end of the day. So, yeah, I thought these two were for sure standouts in the show. Yeah, I'm curious. Whenever you mentioned it earlier in the non-spoiler, uh, it resonated with me. But Millie Alcock, I thought, was so fantastic as Rhaenyra. And I thought Emma D'Arcy was great as well. It just, I don't know, I felt like because she had to play the character second, it almost felt like she was shortchanged a little bit and there wasn't a good transition between those two. So I thought both were great, but Millie Alcock, I think, also super stood out to me. I thought she was so fantastic. Um, and I agree with everybody you called out. I think the only other people I would shout out as well, just real quick, is I think Miguel Sapochnik. He's directed some of my favorite Game of Thrones episodes, and I think the ones that he did here. Obviously, he had show writing duties as well, but he had directed several episodes, and I thought he did a great job. He just has a great eye. Um, and the way his episodes flow and just the way they look is always super spectacular, in my opinion. Roman Jawadi, one of my favorite composers. I mean, I mean, yes. Am I disappointed that this show just reused the Game of Thrones theme for its opening? A little bit. I think that was kind of an easy cop out. But that doesn't change the fact that throughout each episode, all those new tracks that he did, I mean, they hit pretty hard. So shout out to him. Uh, and if I was going to have to shout out one person from the cast, I mean, everybody I listed here, I think is great. And there's several people I, I didn't list here just because if I had to list others, like it just would have gotten like way too crowded. I didn't want to read for five minutes straight. Everybody saw it in this show. But I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy for saying this, but there's something about this guy. There's something about him. I think we're going to see this guy going forward. But Ewan Mitchell as uh, Aemond, uh, Prince Aemon Targaryen. Uh, he's a little fucker, but I, I love this guy. We only got to see him, I think, in episodes eight, nine, and ten. Um, but he just has a presence to him. And does it make sense that he's supposed to be like 17 and he looks 35? No, it doesn't really make too much sense. Even though I think in real life that guy's only 25 and he, he is younger than the actor that plays his older brother, Aegon. But he just looks so old. So it's one of those weird things. But in terms of his performance, I mean, I, I'm scared of this guy. And like, I love the fact that in the earlier episodes, he was played by the like the youngest kid of the group, kind of like the runt of the litter, the one that didn't have a dragon. And then he just gets the biggest dragon and then he gets a growth spurt and he's good at fighting. And I was just scared of him for the, like, the end of the season. I, I like this guy a lot. I'm totally with you on being scared of Eamon. Uh I also, though, there was something about him where I was also hoping like, oh, maybe he's going to ally himself with uh, Rhaenyra's yeah. children because he just seems so smart and like above the bullshit. Uh, but then when they first come back to King's Landing after being at Dragonstone for so long and he's like, hello, cousins, did you come to chain? I was like, oh, he's going to kill these kids. Whenever he was a kid, he was the one that ended the conflict between Alicent and Rhaenyra whenever he was like, it's OK, mother. I may have lost an eye, but I gained a dragon. And even I was like, even though he was the aggressor, I was kind of like, OK, that was a pretty cool line. But then in the cut to the last episode and he at Storm's End, he's like, all right, cousin slash nephew slash half brother, whatever you are to me. He's like. 
take out your own eye because you took mine. And it's like, okay, I guess he got older and changed his mind. <laughs> so, you know, you kind of have to, I guess, just forget about some of those dumb things. Well, I think I think Eamon is very good at sussing out when he has the upper hand. And so I think when he was a kid, he could, he just kind of knew he was not going to win that battle. But I, I, I like the idea that he held on to that grudge for so long yeah. and he just waited for his moment to strike. It's kind of like a serpent. Yeah, oh, for sure. I love that he wants to be king. He's the only one that wants yeah, it, but he's not going to get it. Uh, we'll talk about him more later because I think he's a great character. And I thought he had a good point, too. And he's like, I'm the only one actually putting an effort to be a good king, to understand the history, and I'm the one that's not going to get handed the throne. For sure. All right. Well, you know what Asa and I think of House of the Dragon. So let's, let's see what everybody else has to say. So House of the Dragon currently holds an approval rating of 86% over on Rotten Tomatoes. The website's critical consensus is covering an era of tenuous peace with ferociousness, albeit abbreviated focus. House of the Dragon is an impressive prequel that exemplifies the court intrigue that distinguished its predecessor. Praise went toward the character development, writing, score, and performances, particularly for Considine, Smith, Darcy, and Cook. And then there were some criticisms, though, for the pacing, how some of the time jumps skipped over seemingly important character moments, and the lighting in some scenes. Uh, I know that last critique is something that definitely plagued uh, Game of Thrones in general, particularly the last season. So so weird they didn't learn from this. I, I know, dude. I, I have to say, as much as I enjoyed the show, it's just... I, I almost feel bad for saying it, but there are scenes that are just impossible to like understand or see what's going on because of like some of the choices. So it's it's just annoying. The creators like had a statement where they're like, we wanted it to be realistic with the lighting. And it's like, that doesn't do anything for the story though. I can't see. If I can't see what's <laughs> happening, how am I going to know what's going on and what's realistic or not? I know. Just goofy. Anything else in there that you want to call it before we move on? I think for the most part, it sounds like you and I are kind of in line with most of those points. I can see the point where the time jumps are jarring. I still don't think that's a negative for the show. Like, I don't know how else they tell this story without time jumps unless they want this entire story that they did very effectively in 10 episodes. Like, unless people want that to be like four seasons, I don't know yeah. how you do the story without time jumps. And I'm okay with it, too, because from what I've heard, George R. R. Martin and uh, kind of the team have said they want this entire show to be no more than four seasons. And I kind of like that idea, because if this was going to go eight like Game of Thrones... I just don't know if there's enough content there, and I don't know if the interest would kind of carry over for that long. So if you want to do four seasons, I like that this first one was kind of just the setup to everything, the setup to the conflict of like the Civil War for succession. So if you're going to do that, then you have to do all these time jumps. And if they stick to that four season thing, it sounds like two through four are going to be about this huge conflict with like limited you know, time skipping, which... If that's the case, then I'm fine in this, that this first season had it. So, you know, we'll see how it plays out in the long term. Kind of moving from that point, let's go ahead and just get into our freeform discussion here. This is just the kind of our bulk of the show where Austin and I brought several points that we felt like deserved more time. So I know, Austin, you probably had some uh, jumping off points there. So just with like a general opening, anything we haven't mentioned, where do you want to start this? Let's talk about George R. R. Martin's involvement. Um, I think this show really proved how important his source material is for Game of Thrones content. Because mm. um, they had his little history book that he wrote to go off of for the show. And we saw with Game of Thrones when they got past the books and had to kind of come up with their own story. It didn't work. Uh, so I think it's really important that we had one, George R. R. Martin's blessing to make the show. And two, we actually had his source material to pull from as inspiration, as stuff to follow for the show. I think that's a great point. It's also nice that I guess I could have looked this up, but um, I don't know what his official role was in Game of Thrones. I, I'm sure he was an executive producer. I know he had like, uh, like he consulted with uh, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, but I don't remember like how much of an active role he had. But he is credited as the creator, like the co-creator of the show. Uh, so to your point, maybe, you know, as much as we want him to fucking finish the Game of Thrones books, which he just he announced, I'm 75 percent of the way done with Winds of Winter. It's like, we'll see, dude. You keep telling us that it's been like <laughs> over a decade. Um I do like having him aboard. He just, you know, he knows these characters so well. And to your point, the fact that Fire and Blood is kind of less of an actual, like, book, so to speak, and it's more of an actual just, like, recounting It's more, like, open for interpretation, from what I understand. Yeah, yeah which, is, which is cool. And, and I like that. I like having him there to help tell the story. It makes more sense that way. And I like that they're taking a history book as kind of the source material and then adapting it into 
how do you say it? I guess just like they're adapting it into an actual telling of that history because like the history book itself is like like you said open to interpretation but this they're actually telling us and showing us what really happened so it's kind of cool and I like that he's involved it's also to your point it's nice to know that there's never going to be a point in this show specifically that we're going to run out of like George R. R. Martin source material it's nice that the whole way through he'll be involved to some degree so that that's probably important just based on how Game of Thrones ended there's a really interesting sense of exploration in this show, too, because we're seeing all this stuff that we have that we saw referenced for seven, eight years, whatever it was in Game of Thrones. So like having that little bit of that context and getting it to getting to see it play out is is really exciting. Um, and I, I kind of like that really the only through line here, like the only like direct reference that at least I caught that they make to Game of Thrones itself is just the prophecy that Viserys shares with Rhaenyra. Like everything else, I felt like this show kind of stands on its own. Um, and they, and I, I like that they didn't try to connect it too much to what we saw in Game of Thrones. Yeah, that one was kind of hit or miss for me. I'm glad you brought it up just so I didn't have to wait too long. But in the first episodes, whenever it first came up and he's just saying it and it, it just feels like there's no subtlety. It's just saying, oh, there's a threat coming from the north. And they even they call, even calling it a song of ice and fire. I was like. Okay. That was goofy. Okay, writers. <laughs> let's uh, <laughs> let, let's uh, hold it back a little bit. So that stuff I didn't love, but I, I can't deny that there was like some really badass ones that came of it, especially in the last episode when Rhaenyra is like referencing it. And then Damon is just like, what are you talking about? And then she even, after getting choked out by him, which was really fucked up, even she's like, Oh, Viserys never told you. And she starts laughing at him. <laughs> it was like, okay. Yeah. So obviously. And that's actually. That's what I liked about the prophecy too. Yeah. Is it, it had an impact on this show too, because it made Damon realize he was never ever seriously considered for the throne ever. Exactly. Even when Rhaenyra wasn't around, because obviously he was the heir apparent for a long time before she came into the picture. So that was super interesting. And then of course, I mean, the prophecy. Probably the biggest part it played was again a part that I thought was a little goofy. Was in Viserys's dying breath, he starts reciting parts of the prophecy, and he thinks Rhaenyra is there, but it's actually Alicent. And then she hears the word Aegon, and I don't know. Look, I'm I'm not a parent, <laughs> and I'm not a parent to an heir apparent. But um, the stuff Viserys was saying, I just didn't think there was any way any normal person would interpret that as like, oh, he's talking about my son that needs to be king. I was like, okay. He said Aegon a couple times, but he's not talking at all about that. But I know Alicent is caught up in all that shit, so I, I get it. But We also know Alicent wants more than anything for her kids to be in line for the throne to preserve their safety. So if she, yeah. in my mind, I don't think she like nefariously tried to twist his words. I think she just heard what she wanted to hear and then just right. moved on to that. Right. Yeah, which is enough. Yeah, another good writing moment. It, like it was a little bit goofy, but still, I think it ended up uh, coming to a good place for sure. And episode nine, where the coup happens, is my favorite of the show. I thought that oh, was executed okay. so well. Um, I thought it was really good payoff to everything that had been building up for the prior episodes, and it, it felt like classic Game of Thrones to me, with like the conniving and going behind people's backs and locking people in, in dungeons to keep the word from getting out. I th I thought that episode was perfect. Yeah, I like that one a lot, too. Um, just, yeah, just the whole politicking of it all. Uh, are there things that I don't like? Yes. And I'm very curious to get your thoughts on Otto Hightower in general. I thought Re-Siphons, I, I, I really like Re-Siphons as an actor. Uh, and in this show, I thought he was great. I do think he might be the character that suffers the most from the time jumps, because it only ever feels like to me that he's just a like finger twirling dastardly villain i never got much else from this guy and i wanted to uh, and i feel like they tried to squeeze in some moments here and there to humanize him but i just never felt it, it just he always feels like a villain and even Littlefinger in game of thrones has those moments where you realize oh here's his origin here's his backstory here's what pushed him into this weird position of trying to finagle his way and like politic and do all that shit i never got any of that from otto hightower so that's my only issue with episode nine and kind of his character in general i mean did you have any thoughts on that now that i'm bringing him up because he is i would say another one if i'm talking about the time jumps i guess being my main negative of the show in some cases not all he might be like the biggest casualty in my eyes. I'll echo you on the performance, but I think he might be my least favorite character of the show. And not in terms of like, oh, the character is so evil, just in terms of I just found him kind of annoying. Like every time he popped up, I just it's kind of like your point. I just didn't really care about him. 
Um, the only thing I liked about Otto is how he influenced Alicent, uh, yeah. one as a kid, um, and then two, like how he kind of like took the wheel and steered the the coup into existence, basically in episode nine. Um, but I never understood what he wanted, other than he exactly. just wants someone from his family power, on the throne. I guess? I guess. Which is that it? Just is everybody power? else in this show too? So he didn't really like stand out to me. A- another like dog shit character, Kristen Cole, who I loved in the beginning, and then just they do a time jump after Allison finds him about to commit suicide, and then it just cuts, and he's like the worst guy in the world. The time jumps did him the most dirty, I thought, because we didn't get to see any of his relationship with Allison to understand yeah. why he's so loyal now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they did him dirty for sure, but at least you knew his motivation as fucked up as it was. He's just like, I got spurned by my, the love of my life for Nera Targaryen. So at least there was that. But like to your point, like contrasting that with Otto, I was like, what is, does he just, is power it? Is that all we want? I don't know. <laughs> so at least there was something. All right. So we're talking about some of our favorite characters and just our favorite character moments here. We've already talked about Rhaenyra and Alicent a lot, um, but let's just kind of get into them more in depth here because- they're kind of, I don't know, I guess, I mean, I think I would call them the two main characters of the show, certainly our main kind of POV characters. So what do you want to talk about, Austin? Where do you want to start with them? Should we start with them younger and kind of just their journey through the show? I mean, or should we just start with like, some of our favorite Rainier and Allison moments? Let's talk about, um, I think Allison is one of the most dangerous people in this show. And oh, yeah. my reason for that is she's a morally challenged character who thinks she's a good person. So she thinks everything she's doing is the right thing. She thinks she's always in the right. And I think that makes her extremely dangerous because she has no room to really compromise on her beliefs because she thinks she's like the most perfect person in this show and everything she's doing is for the betterment of the crown and the betterment of the realm. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't like um, the pushback to Allison's character I've seen out there. A lot of people are saying that they don't like her. And to that, I say... Go for it. You're allowed to not like the character, of course. But I've seen a lot of people criticize the writing. And I have to say, I think Allison is an incredibly compelling character. Um, I think you can even look again to Austin's favorite episode of the season, episode nine, where she confronts Otto, her father, and basically acknowledges that, like, all these choices that she thought she was making, she was either gaslit or just pushed by her father to do it. And she was a fucking kid. So it's like everything that ended up happening is because he pushed her to do it when she thought she was doing the nice thing by comforting Viserys when his wife and unborn son had just died. Uh, In reality, uh, that was just him trying to vie for power. So I love the writing for a character. Obviously, I hate a lot of the things she does because a lot of it doesn't make sense. But I understand still why she's doing it if that makes sense in a weird way. So I think she's an incredibly compelling character. And I think Emily Carey and definitely Olivia Cook uh, do a great job portraying that. Yeah. I, I, um, I really like this character in terms of everything that we're talking about. I, I thought the performance is great. I think the writing is fantastic for this character and I like her interactions with everybody on the show. Um, I think her interactions with Viserys is really interesting because she was forced into this marriage. And then at, at some point it seems like she does care for him. And then other points it's like, she's just waiting for him to die. I really love how hard she fights for her kids and how much she is very aware of their own mortality as soon as Viserys does die and how there is going to be this vying for power of the throne. Um, so I think I think Alicent is one of the most interesting characters in this show. That being said, I personally don't like the character itself, um, but I found it very compelling to watch play out on screen. Yeah, I'm definitely not on her side. As, as where things stand, I think I would more align with uh, the Blacks. Uh, as opposed to the Greens, as the conflict uh, uh, kind of lays out, as I have come to learn. But uh, I would too. But I think the show wants you to as well at, th- at this point. But I'm I'm very curious. I think that's probably gonna not necessarily change, but just uh, I'll get more conflicted about going forward. But yeah, I-, I definitely like where you're coming from. I like her interactions with all her children, even when they're despicable. I mean, she chastises Egon for raping a handmaiden. And then serving the same tea, uh, I don't know what you would call it, but the tea that Viserys serves to Rhaenyra. Contraceptive tea. Right. Uh, And that's the same thing that Alicent hears about. And it's like the thing that she fixates on, the thing that she allows their friendship to deteriorate from. Uh, But then years later, she serves the same tea to the same, you know, the handmaiden that Aegon uh, raped. Um, And then still... Flash forward to Aegon about to become king. She's like, he's like, do you love me? She's like, 
You imbecile. Of course. So it's like <laughs> she's just so deluded. But yeah, she is fighting for her children. So it's it's really fucked up. I thought Aegon was going to kill her in that scene since he didn't want to be king so badly. I thought he was going to grab that knife and kill her. I loved whenever he ascended, though. And like whenever he heard the cheers, he was like, oh, I fucking love this. And then he's like fist pumping with the sword. It was like, man, this kid fucking sucks. But you get why he would go from not wanting the power to the second he hears any type of praise. Because uh, that's what he wanted from Viserys the whole time. Uh, he's like all about it. So pretty crazy. But yeah, Allison, I'm I'm with you. I think while I don't agree with what the character does, I still think it's a very well-written character. Um, so let's move to the Rhaenyra side. I mean, probably even more of a main character in this show. Obviously, we loved Millie Alcott's performance, and we both seems like, it sounds like we really liked MDRC. So what do you want to talk about here? Because another character that I quite like a lot, I don't agree with a lot of the things she does, but still another, I think, relatively well-written character. Yeah, Rhaenyra's the one I'm rooting for in the show. Uh, we can't forget the despicable thing she does, too, though. Uh, she does abuse her power over Christian Cole. Yeah. Uh, she has her husband killed so she can marry her uncle. So she has her own faults for sure. But somehow with the writing for the character, um, she's still the one I find myself rooting for the most in this show. Yeah, that's the weird thing. I think that's where I can almost root for Rhaenyra in more of a way than the Allison side right now. And I think you're right to your point. I think that's what the show wants us to do. Because, yes, the Kristen Cole stuff, I absolutely hate Kristen Cole now. And the way his character acts is completely too far of an overcorrection with how he was treated by Rhaenyra. It, it's stupid that he's just a yeah. mindless killer now. But that doesn't change the fact that she did take advantage of that situation for sure, like you said. So it was like, OK, that's kind of fucked up. Uh, with, with the husband thing, it's interesting because I was after I finished the season, I did want to look up some certain things. I wanted to be careful that I didn't spoil anything from the future. But I thought you might find this interesting, Austin. But uh, Lainor Valerian in the books from what I understand, was killed in that situation that you're talking about, either by Damon or like orchestrated by Damon so that Rhaenyra and Damon could marry. But in the show, they actually faked his death so that they could achieve that same goal. And if we remember, I think episode seven ends with Leonor and his lover escaping via boat. So it's still kind of like Rhaenyra's like, okay, I get, did she just kill her husband to marry Damon? That's, I, I can't root for her anymore. But then it's like, oh no, she's just a fucking ally to the end. She orchestrated a, a way for her um, you know, homosexual husband to escape with his lover to go live a life. Oh wait, I, I totally missed that. I, my, so her husband's still alive? I, I think it might be the lighting. <laughs> It was such a dark scene. I thought that was just the lover that killed her husband getting away on the boat and getting paid. The husband, they faked his death and the husband and um, his lover escaped together. Uh, so the lover, as was perpetrated, I think, did not kill Leonor. They actually, I guess, either they killed someone else or I don't know how that worked, but they both ended up escaping together to leave for either Essos or just to live somewhere where they don't have to be in this world anymore. Because Rhaenyra wanted that for him. That went way over my head. I'm even way more now on the Team Rhaenyra side of the show. Okay, great. Because I was always wondering, like, by the end, whenever uh, Corliss and uh, Rhaenys kind of come more to Rhaenyra's side, I was wondering if she was going to come clean. Because the reason they hated her was because they felt that she killed or orchestrated Laenor's death so she could marry Daemon. So I was wondering if they were going to bring that up, but maybe they will in the future. But I thought that was a great twist. And to your point, it's like even when these dastardly things happen with Rainier, at least, they kind of go forward and show us that like there is humanity to her, especially in the last episodes, which I love whenever you see the Viserys side of her, uh, whenever like it comes to Damon trying to orchestrate this war. And she's like, no, we have to unite this, the seven kingdoms. We have to unite the kingdoms, unite Westeros. And uh, because not only of the dream, but just because that's the right thing to do. And it's not until, you know, her son dies that it's like, uh oh, I think war is going to happen. So she tries to do the right thing despite some mistakes along the way. I think that makes her a very relatable and, you know, a character that we can root for. Her final moments in the finale, I thought were really great. Um, just seeing how willing she is. She's almost willing to give up the crown to avoid all this bloodshed, which I thought was very, you can definitely see, like you said, the Viserys effect on her. And, and for a Targaryen, I thought that was cool to see from what we know about the Targaryens from Game of Thrones. Um, what did you think about her finally kind of involving her sons in the action and, and sending them out as messengers? I loved it. I thought it was a very human moment in a way. 
because her sons clearly felt like they needed to get involved and she kept uh, downplaying that and not allowing that. And I loved, I was like, okay, they're going to get involved. This could get messy. But then that scene is immediately followed up with her making them swear that they are just going to be messengers because that's all that we need to be in our position of power um, and not be a warrior. And they both swear on that, which, of course, Lucerus would have died anyway, but still that's a part of why he maybe dies. And I thought that was such a great moment. So, yeah. It was weird because I feel like in a lot of pieces of media like this, whenever they get involved in like that level, children at least, like that level of war, it's like, oh, I don't know if that's a good idea. But for some reason here it worked. I thought it felt kind of earned. I like the way they got involved here. I like the way they got involved, but I also had this sense of this is not going to go well for them even even before they left uh, Dragonstone. And that scene when Lucerus lands and then you see Vagor's shadow um, over the castle keep. Is it was it was one just a beautiful shot and it really shows you the size of how freaking big Aemon's dragon is. Um, and two, that's that's when you're like, oh yeah, this kid's dead for sure. There's no way he's leaving this if Aemon's there. And it's interesting, you know, this is like the early stages of a potential war, um, which Rhaenyra is not treating it as such yet. Like she said, until we know who our allies are, we won't start a war. Which I love that line. And even Corlys Valerian, this guy that's known war all his life, seemed to respect that too. But Whenever Lucerus shows up to Storm's End to recruit the Baratheons and he has nothing to offer, it's just here's the message, but you know, there's no trade. Uh, that's deemed kind of disrespectful. So it's like Aemon came uh, and the offers Aemon will marry one of the Baratheon daughters. And, you know, so Rhaenyra maybe didn't think that one through. Like, I'll send Lucerus with this message, but should he have an offer? <laughs> like, for kind of Rhaenyra just assumed, well, the Baratheons, like, 20 years ago, as everybody kept saying, they promised, you know, to bend the knee to me. But it's like, even Otto Hightower might have been right in that uh, in that sense that, yeah, that was decades ago. That's stale, as he kept calling it. That's a stale oath, essentially. So maybe they should have thought that one through because it was like he walked in the door Gave a message and nothing else. And he was like, are you serious? <laughs> you have a fucking piece of paper? Great. Fuck off. <laughs> Were you hoping to see the Starks in that final closing? Uh, Yes, but I think we definitely will in season two. So it felt like kind of like a fun little tease. I thought it would be nice because we saw the Baratheons obviously uh, neg on their oath. I thought it would be nice to see at least one family keep their oath and see what that looks like. For sure. For sure. I think it could be a good start to season two, though, because with this ending the way it did, I mean, the cliffhanger is essentially silently Damon telling Rhaenyra that Lucerys is dead and probably that Aemon killed him. Uh, and she has gone from not wanting a war to now she obviously wants a war. I think season two could start in a good way with the Starks. And I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. So people that have read the book might know. But I'm assuming the Starks will keep their vow because even in the Game of Thrones timeline, that's what they are known for, for keeping their oath. So maybe it starts and she's like we're going to war and the Starks will join her. So we'll see. But I have to imagine we'll see Winterfell and like the current day Starks again. So th that'll be fun. I'm excited for it. But uh, I, w I was itching for it. I do, I do love Winterfell. So <laughs> I was hoping for it a little bit. So let's go ahead and get into our, our kind of our last big character. That's Damon. Um, we've we both talked about how much we love the performance from Matt Smith. Uh, I thought the finale with him was very revealing because they were, uh, you know, we see him in episode one uh, where he's, you know, just kind of a bloodthirsty guy. Uh, we see him in the following episodes, kill the wife that he's married to and then do some other stuff. Um, but then for the most part, he uh, is, is pretty loyal to Rhaenyra and kind of, at least for me, I kind of came around on his character. I was like, yeah, he's a fucked up guy, but he clearly has ambitions and, and at least at, at the end of the day cares for Rhaenyra. That's what I thought going into the finale. Uh, and then you really see his true colors come out when he chokes Rhaenyra. You can kind of see that the only thing Daemon cares about is power. And if Rhaenyra is not going to go to war and, and make a bid to keep her power, it seems like he's not very interested in Rhaenyra anymore either. So wanted to get your thoughts on Daemon in this show. Yeah, an incredibly interesting character that I still, after 10 episodes, don't know what he wants. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure. I think, in general, you're right. I think Damon is a character that lived for, I don't know, I guess uh, 25, maybe 30 years 
assuming that when Viserys died after not having kids for so long, that he would get to be king, right? So he, I think, probably uh, prepared in his mind, much like Aemon did, uh, that he would be king. And then that doesn't happen. He starts having kids, but then the only kids that he has is Rhaenyra. So I think even then, Damon's like, this is great. They're not going to make a woman king, right? They're not going to have a queen. (laughs) They've never done that before. So I'm going to be king. It's going to be great. Uh... And then he gets exiled, and then he tries to have sex with young Rhaenyra, which I guess the Targaryens is okay, as long as you're over 14. They mentioned 14 too many times in the show, and it made me uncomfortable. <laughs> as long as you're over 14, basically, like you're good to go, essentially. Well, you remember when Viserys goes on a date with a nine-year-old? I, I he's like a 55-year-old man. That was disgusting. <laughs> Ugh. Even he was like, I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just gross. Well, it's even a gross line whenever her parents are like, well, she'll be 14 in like six years. That's what she'll I mean. Okay. They keep saying 14. It's like, is that the age of consent? I don't like this. Ugh. Anyway, with Damon. So then he clearly exhibits that he is interested in Rhaenyra, right? Well, he even asks for Sarah to marry her to him. Right. But then he gets exiled and then he uh, has two children and then their mother dies in childbirth, and then he doesn't really seem to care about them or communicate with them ever again. <sighs> so I don't know. I guess to your point, yes, he just wants power. Whenever he eventually gets back together with Rhaenyra, he views that as his opportunity to not be king because either it's going to be Rhaenyra or Viserys' firstborn son. It's not going to be him anymore. So if he's married to Rhaenyra, then he can at least have power. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I guess we should talk more about that moment in the uh, in the season finale whenever he chokes her. Uh, yeah, let's talk more about that because I was kind of rooting for him as well, even though he's a terrible person, like terrible. It's a little bit like what we talked about uh, last week with Andor, where uh, the writing is so compelling here that we find ourselves uh, somehow rooting for Empire characters. Same thing here with uh, with Damon. Like I, I found myself rooting for Damon, even though I have seen him do terrible things on this show. Like I said, I did think the finale for this character was very revealing, uh, not only when he chokes her, but also when she is um, going through her miscarriage and screaming his name out and Ugh. he's refusing to come to her yeah. and seizing control of the moment. Um, I'm very nervous to see him like in control of an army because we saw what he did when he was in control of the yeah. Night's Watch. He's a character I can't wait to see more of, but I'm just very nervous of like how depraved he's going to get. And that's where I wonder you know, how the writing will support that, because... One of my favorite episodes of the season was Viserys walking into the throne room to support Rhaenyra whenever she's kind of proclaiming why she should still, you know, be queen based on Viserys's past testimony. But that that great scene where he like the crown falls off of his head when he's walking up to the throne and Damon helps him get to his throne and he puts the crown back on his head. After that moment, I was like, man, I guess, you know, Damon just loves his brother and maybe it goes back to some of the stuff we talked about with Aegon and Aemon that they just wanted that love and respect from their father maybe that's all Damon wanted but I don't know every like a moment after that I don't know where he just did something like disgusting and villainous it was like ugh is, I guess I kept asking myself is it really just power with you is that all it is and at least right now I'm kind of with you that's what it seems like which is kind of uninteresting Matt Smith always killed in the performance but just I have so many questions about him that, like, yeah, like I said, my mind is just racing when it comes to Damon more than any other character in this show. I think it's power with him, and I, I think it's also a respect for the Targaryen name. Um, I, I think he can't stand that the High Towers are trying to go against him right now. I think that's how he sees it. I think he also sees it as he was exiled for trying to kind of vie for the crown, and now these people are doing the same thing in his brother's absence, and no one's really holding them accountable. I think he might see it as a double standard. So I think there are some more nuances to what he wants, but I think at the end of the day, if you had to pick one word, it would be power. Yeah, I guess to end the Damon conversation, we'll see what happens. But it seems like in uh, his whole journey in this first season was to end up with Rhaenyra. Like he was willing to do anything to kind of end up with her. But now that he's with her, he's still exhibiting some of those disgusting tendencies. So will that continue? Will he support her in the future? Like. Will he support her to be queen so that he could be king? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen in this war because neither of us have, like, you know, read the source material to that point. So I don't know. This is a character that could go 
truly anywhere. All I know is that I want to see him have more scenes with Eamon because that one scene where neither of them spoke to each other after the dinner in episode eight, I think it was, where Eamon like, calls out the kid as illegitimate like everybody does. And Damon just steps in his way and like puts his hand on his sword. And Eamon's seeing that weird like half smile that he always does being a 35-year-old man. And then he just like <laughs> stops smiling and walks away. And then Damon smiles. So he's like, fucking got him. I was like, okay, we've got to get more scenes with these guys. <laughs> I think it, uh, that scene was awesome. I, I think in another life, those two would be best buds, though, too. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> if, they wouldn't, if, if Damon could have stopped getting exiled so many times, maybe they could have grown up together. <laughs> Are you excited to see that big-ass dragon that Damon was trying to recruit, uh, Vermithor? I thought that was a weird scene. Um, I, I like that they called it out before that with Damon saying that, um, you know, at Dragonstone, they, ha- they have way more dragons than King's Landing, but they don't have dragon riders. So I liked that. And I think Rhaenyra was one that said, yeah, we have way more dragons, but they aren't prepared for war. So obviously that prompted uh, Damon to go get the big dragon from Mithor, which I think was connected to like the older just Jaharis, I think, like the the grandfather from the first episode, the one that you know was the elder king that eventually passed it along to Viserys. But I mean, I just don't know what to expect. I mean, the way they set it up in this episode, you know, with the finale, it seems like Damon will become his rider as well. I don't know how that works with the dragons because Damon also has Caraxes. So can you have multiple dragons? Can you ride multiple? I don't know. So I guess they're just setting up that like, oh, Aemon and the, the Greens, they have Vagard, like the biggest dragon. But hey, we have a fucking big dragon too. So I'm not sure exactly who's going to ride it or what they're setting up there. Yeah, from from what I understand, apparently Vagar, who is Aemon's dragon, that dragon is, the nickname is the Grandmother of Dragons. Um, that's one of the OG dragons. Like uh, there were three big ones that were the Conquerors, essentially. It's actually the smallest of those three. Um, but it is the last like remaining one of the of the original three. Um, and then Vermithor is a descendant of one of those three. So also very big um, and, and kind of comes from that original lineage. So it, apparently Vermithor is like one of the few dragons today that would have a chance to go up against Vagor. OK, yeah. So there you go. So they're clearly just trying to set up because I guess before that, we probably saw, you know, Vagar kill uh, Lucerus and Araxas. So this was uh, <laughs> the way to set up. Well, we got a big dragon, too. So. I'm excited to see more dragon fights, ones that aren't, you know, as uh, easy to win, maybe. Ones with a bit yeah. more uh, conflict will be kind of fun to watch. All right, so I think there's really not more of a natural place to kind of leave off our discussion on House of the Dragon than uh, the two questions I have prepared for you, my friend Matt. And that's A, are you excited for season two of this show? And then B, maybe more importantly, are you excited for the expansion of the Game of Thrones universe? Because there are a lot more of these spinoffs in development. Yeah, I mean, I, like I said uh, at, at the very beginning here, whenever Game of Thrones ended, I was not excited at all for spinoffs. Uh, but after finally binging most of and then watching the last couple episodes of House of the Dragon season one week by week, I cannot wait for season two. I'm very excited. I think this is a natural place to end. I'm sure there'll be some complaints. It's like, well, you know, you kept setting up with the civil war between, you know, the Targaryens, which I guess technically you could say is, you know, the Targaryens versus the High Towers. But I liked this first season, even though I had a lot of problems with the time jumps and how they skipped over like important character stuff, in my opinion. I think we're going to get into the future seasons and we're not going to see that anymore. But we've gotten our established characters now, right? So that makes me even more excited for season two and where this one ends with Rhaenyra doing her damn best to not go into war. She wants to unite the kingdoms in Westeros against this future threat, you know, against this egg on the conqueror's dream of a song of ice and fire, which as cheesy as it is, like we know that will come to play in Game of Thrones with the White Walkers and all that stuff. And then with the whole Aemon and Lucerys thing, that accidental death, doesn't matter if it was an accident or not, watching that one take of Damon walk in and clearly telling her what happened and she turns into the camera and she's like, Never mind, we're starting a fucking war. Uh, I can't wait for season two. I have no idea what's going to happen. Um, I'm even more excited than I was going into this, even like halfway through the season of like seeing these characters interact again. Like, can you imagine now? Like, is Rhaenyra and Allison going to have a conversation again? Like, just them? Or, like, I don't know. <laughs> so I- I'm really curious how that's all going to go. Uh, cannot wait for season two. 
Yeah, I think I'm right there with you. I think the only thing I'm upset about is that we have to wait until fucking 2024 to see season two. But yeah, I, I thought this first season did such a good job of laying the groundwork for the future. I think they're actually in such a good foundational spot um, to do a ton with the Civil War. This went from being like one of my, like not least anticipated, but like least interested in shows of the year to now like season two might be my most like anticipated thing uh, beyond like Andor season two to come out in, in the coming years. Yeah, and it's also cool that we saw a lot of like key characters interact in this season um, before all the shit went down. Like, it's crazy to think that there was a dinner scene that both Rhaenyra and Aegon were at. Like, can you imagine now in season two, Rhaenyra and Aegon interacting as like the current king and the queen that feels that she deserves like the throne? Even just Sarah's too being at the table. Like, they'd I be know. put to the sword, as they say. Yeah, so I, I can't wait. I'm really excited. I liked that I wasn't excited for season one, but then I thought season one was good enough to get me super pumped. And I just hope that they don't have those same time jumps. I don't think they would, but that, since that was my biggest problem with season one, I'm even more excited for season two because I don't, I can't imagine why they would have those same things with this war about to start. So that gets me even more excited. I think we're all going to be grateful for the time jumps when we open with season two and it's just a fucking war that we get to yeah, see for a full season. For sure. And then to your other question, I'm... Because I'm so kind of amped on this, I'm also, I think, a bit more open and anticipating any future project that they end up doing. Um, you know, Game of Thrones, I think, works so well on its own despite that last season. But I think, you know, with different people involved, different teams, and maybe here and there having some George R. R. Martin oversight, I'm pretty open to kind of any project they attempt to do. I mean, why not? I'm, I'm excited to learn more about this world. Yeah, I think in regards to other spinoffs beyond um, like House of the Dragon, it, it kind of goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of this episode. I think having source material and George R. R. Martin to pull from really helped this show. So I'm nervous for some of these other things that have been announced. Um, the biggest one being the Jon Snow show with Kit Harington returning. That takes place, apparently it's a sequel to Game of Thrones, which makes me very nervous because we are very far beyond the source material there. Um, there are other things that have been announced, like 10,000 ships and the voyages that are set kind of within this time period, which I think could be really fun. But anything like beyond where the source material is, I, I don't have a lot of faith in that still because of the taste that the finale of Game of Thrones left in my mouth. Yeah, I think a lot of the prequel stuff I'm excited about because George R. R. Martin has really done so much work with like in regards to stories that take place before Game of Thrones, whether it be in, you know, Fire and Blood, obviously, but then just other like historical, like fictional texts almost like what Tolkien did with the Cimmerillion for Lord of the Rings. So it's like, I'm not really worried about the prequel stuff, kind of to your point. I'm excited about some of those things. But while the Jon Snow sequel is super interesting, because it's like there's a lot of characters and storylines that we could see continue, I, I am nervous. I mean, you have to have a great team involved. I mean, David Benioff and D.B. Wise, I think, are going to be nowhere near that thing. Not that they didn't do a great job on the first season of Game of Thrones, but if they get a new team together... And it seems like George R. R. Martin, even though he hasn't written that stuff yet, it seems like he would still be involved. It could be cool. Uh, it could be interesting to see where that goes. I mean, I always think about that one of those final scenes in a Game of Thrones where uh, Jon Snow kills Daenerys and then uh, Drogon, what, whichever dragon was left, uh, like picks her up and instead of killing Jon Snow, just carries her away. And there was a mention of, uh, you know, the... Um, Melisandre, like those people that are re resurrected Jon Snow, there was mention of them earlier in the season, so maybe she gets resurrected, and then that does that start a whole another conflict? I don't know. They have tons of opportunities and storylines they could potentially go with a sequel because you know so many people are still alive. Uh, so it's exciting in that sense because it's like, oh my god, what's it gonna be? But to your point, I feel like that show almost needs like a. It just needs a really, really good team behind the scenes uh, to feel good about. <laughs> it's a weird show, too, because it sounds like Kit Harrington just like kicked down HBO's doors one day and was like, hey, I need a paycheck. Let's make a Help Jon me. Snow show. Help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm not doing anything else. I'm the boyfriend character in Eternals. So maybe I'll come back to Marvel. But in case I don't, can we do more Jon Snow stuff? Please, guys. I, I really don't want to get a day job. Please. <laughs> Please. <laughs> His pitches just help me. <laughs> <laughs> I've discovered I'm uh, really not that great of an actor unless I'm in a Game of Thrones show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love being monotone. Please let me keep doing that. 
Uh, I am excited for the idea. Like, I'm going to be the first person to watch it, but I I am nervous about that one, kind of to your point. The prequel stuff, I want to see more about Corliss Valerian and the Snee Snake that we kept hearing about. Like, that kind of, uh, the Valerian, uh, that fleet. I'm like, that sounds pretty cool. I'd like to see some adventures there. I want to see Dorne get founded by Princess Nymeria. So, you know what? I'm down for the prequels, but please make the Jon Snow uh, show good. Because Austin will be really, really sad if that show is on the territory of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, That will be really bad for him. (laughs) Just so we're clear for the listenership, uh, Princess Nymeria finding and founding Dorne, uh, that is 10,000 Ships, which is another um, show coming from Game of Thrones. And then Matt also referenced Corlys Valerian and the Sea Snake. Uh, That is Nine Voyages, which is also another spinoff in this world. Um, one of these, I can't remember which one, has been pitched basically as a pirate show set in Game of Thrones, which sounds really sweet. Um, so whichever one that is, I think, is the one I'm most excited for. Yeah, I don't know if that's 10,000 uh, ships or nine voyages. Both sounds like they could be somewhat similar, but not a bad thing. I'm excited for any animated projects they do. It sounds like HBO Max is considering a few of those. So that could be kind of a cool new take on Game of Thrones, especially if it's like a more of an anime style. I could see that really working well. And then I know... Um, George R. R. Martin has written several novellas uh, that kind of are in the Tales of Duncan Egg series, kind of a funny title, but it's a those are the nicknames of two characters, and it's kind of some a, ser- a series of adventures that follow a future Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, as well as the future King Aegon Targaryen, the fifth of his name, so several generations down the line. So apparently they kind of go on adventures together, then Aegon uh, becomes king, and he's not supposed to become king. He's almost like if Eamon, if Eamon had become king. He's not the brother that was the oldest, so he was not supposed to be king. But then he always was close with this um with a uh, this future person that would become his protector and also the lord of the Kingsguard. He becomes the king Kingsguard when he's king. So they go on several adventures when they're when they're younger. So I guess they're trying to develop a show based on that since uh Martin has written several stories for them as well. So who knows? Could be interesting. I mean, they're tr- clearly trying to develop set, like three to five uh, spinoff shows. So we'll see how many of these actually happen. Yeah. Anything with George Martin involved, um, I'm here for it. Anything beyond that, I'm nervous. Ooh, me too. All right, Austin. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get into our awards segment. Um, speaking of being nervous, because I'm nervous about who's going to get my award. But this is just the part of our show before we close out where we give... A podcast award. It can be something negative. It could be something positive. It's just something that we think deserves specific praise. So, Austin, do you know who, what, or just whatever you want to give your award to? Yeah, I'm going to give uh, the only award I can naturally give. Um, It made a lot of headlines when this scene happened in the show. But I'm going to give um, the feisty footsie man award uh, (laughs) to Larry Strong, (laughs) who is very in Talos and Hightower's That was mine. That was mine, of course. (laughs) Dang it. (laughs) I think I'm going to give the eyeglasses award to the team behind Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon because Austin and I couldn't see a lot of what you guys were trying to present to us. (laughs) So (laughs) I think in the future when you're trying to make season two and these spinoff shows, just make sure you turn up that lighting a little bit in the darker scenes because if you don't, Austin and I might not know that certain characters survived or died or had a jewel in their eyes. So there's definitely a gamut, kind of a, it runs the range there of what we could see or not see, but we're missing important information. So please just uh, maybe ramp that lighting up a little bit. I'm just so happy Leonor is alive. It's very nice <laughs> to find out that he's just living his best life um, away from go. all this. Pleasant surprise. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit that follow button so you never miss our upcoming content. Also, if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend, we really would appreciate that. So we continue to grow our show. Please leave us reviews as well. Even if you want to write anything, leaving us a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, really does help us out. At The Arnie's is our social, and thearnies.media is the website. Austin and I will be back next Tuesday to talk about the new MCU edition with Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. How are you feeling about this one? I'm really excited. It's going to be fun to return uh, to the MCU and see how they handle Chadwick Boseman's death. Um, It also looks like we're getting a few new characters introduced, um, Namor and Ironheart. I'm excited to see how these characters kind of fit into the MCU and just really interested to see how this movie plays out. Me too. I think it's going to be an emotional ride, which I'm kind of down for. I think it'll be a little bit different than our past 
kind of more, I don't know, like fun-seeking MCU projects. So I'm excited for something a bit more down-to-earth. I really like that first Black Panther movie. So the idea that Ryan Coogler is still behind uh, the camera here is something that really the excites Cookster. me. The Coogster. Um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be, like I said, emotional, but I think it's going to be a good movie. Uh, fingers crossed for sure. And last week, uh, the three of us went on a journey to a galaxy far, far away. And we discovered, you know what? Star Wars is pretty good. Uh, we talked wow. about Andor. We talked about Tales of the Jedi. Right now, Lucasfilm is really knocking it out of the park uh, with their Disney Plus shows. Uh, big step up from the book of Boba Fett and Obi-Wan. So if anyone wants to check that episode out, uh, be sure to scroll back on your podcast feed and give that a listen. I'll tell you what. I watched the new episode and whew, I want to talk about it so bad. Austin hasn't watched it yet. He's going to love it. I can't wait. God, Andor so good. So good. Uh, <laughs> But everybody, lastly, we do want to hear from you. So message us over on Instagram at the Arnie's or email us the Arnie's media at gmail.com. What did you think of season one of House of the Dragon? Is Damon Targaryen going to fuck everyone over? Because it's quite possible. Anything you say, we're going to read on the show and react to it live on our latest episode. And with that, everybody, have a great rest of your week. We'll see you next time for Black Panther Wakanda Forever. See ya. Nothing good is going to come from that kid named Joffrey. Nothing oh, good. How do we not talk about that? Oh, no. Oh no!